Uh, we'll be in First John today. You can go ahead and turn there. First John, chapter three. Make sure you grab notes if you haven't. If you don't have notes. First John chapter three. And we'll be going nineteen to twenty-three today. Let's read it together, or not together, I'll, I'll read it. And by this, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do these things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we, should that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us the commandment. Let's pray. Lord, I'm reminded in this moment the comfort that your spirit brings by your word. And Lord, if we, any of us in here today, feel or are experiencing not just discomfort, but a condemning conscience, a condemning heart, I pray, Lord, by your spirit, for your glory, that they would find comfort in you today. That they would experience the comfort that it is to know you, and yet the fear and the awe that it is to stand in your presence. God, do this, we ask, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, just uh, by way of a little bit of a review, uh, we looked at, if you look back um, in verse 16, we looked at, uh, I'll just read it, by this we know that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So last week we looked at two kind of, two things. We looked at Christ, his life being laid down, what all that meant. But then there was a heavy dose, I felt like there was a heavy dose of implication because that's what John is saying. That's what, that's what God is saying through John, that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And he goes on in verse 18, he says, My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. So there's a lot. There's, there's a lot here. There was a lot that I, I felt like it was, it was heavy. Maybe it wasn't. But it's interesting to me that in 1 John, he's been talking about different tests of how we can know we're Christians. He's talked about the test of righteousness versus unrighteousness, the test of love and hate. But then he kind of sticks this in here. He, John does this over and over again. It's like a parenthesis of sorts he puts in here. And this is where we're at today. But before we get into the text, I want to present to you three different people. Okay, and these are nobody in this church. Every time I give an example like this, people, I think everyone thinks I'm like giving someone from this church. Trust me, I'm not. <laughs> that would be very, very silly. But let me present to you three different people. So Mary came to faith at a young age. She has been part of a church for as long as she can remember. But Mary began struggling with depression while her children were little. It's been years since this started, and now she explains 
that she can actually no longer read her Bible for comfort or encouragement. Every time she opens the scriptures, she is confirmed with how much of a failure she is. I wonder, what's, what's going on there with Mary? Or maybe Sally. Maybe I'll give you Sally. Sally, who came to faith later in life. She's grown up so much in her faith, but is also dealing with depression. Her criteria for success was a home in perfect order and two perfectly behaving young children. Her inability to meet these standards caused her to be hypercritical of herself and of her family. This, in turn, alienated her from her husband and her children, which created additional problems and reinforced her feeling of being inadequate as a wife and a mother. Let me ask you about Sally. What's going on with Sally? Or maybe Steve. Maybe Steve, who came to faith at a young age. He's been in the church for 60 years. He committed a sin as a teenager, and he just can't move past. This has been happening for 60 years. From a theological standpoint, he knows, he knows, I'm forgiven. Because he has confessed his sins numerous times. He's believed on Jesus. But despite his affirmations regarding God's forgiveness, he still was not free from self-condemnation for 60 years. Let me ask you, are these stories rare? I don't, I, don't think they're un, I don't think they're rare at all. I think they're very common. And I would argue they're not uncommon. But let's take a deeper layer. What, what do you think, of the three people I presented, what do you think their prayer life would look like? Do you think they would pray confidently? I think we could all very quickly say, like, no. They would not pray confidently. But thankfully, what John is doing today is he's giving us the answer for the condemned heart. Let me, so if you're taking notes, it's just, if you get one thing from today, get this. It's at the very top of your page. Since God is greater than our hearts and knows all things, we should comfort our condemning consciences as we seek this comfort, we will have confidence before him and we will experience joy-filled prayer. So notice what he says in verse 19. So he's kind of shifting gears here. Like we said, he's, he's, he's been giving us different tests of righteousness and unrighteousness, of love and hate. And now he says, listen to what he says in verse 19. By this, and by this, we know, I would, I would argue, it should say, by this we shall know, or we will know, that we are of the truth and, and reassure our hearts before him. This shall, there's two words there, and if you notice, look, this, look down in verse 19. It says, we, this, by this we know, there should be a will know. And, and there when it says, we shall assure our hearts. He's, he's presenting to us a future moment. So maybe you're sitting there and you're like, well, Daniel, I'm not condemned. My conscience doesn't condemn me. I would argue that John is saying, if it hasn't come yet, it will. The condemning conscience, if it hasn't come yet for you, it will come someday. And when it comes, you will know what to do. If you're taking notes, it's comfort for the condemned conscience. And now you should be thinking in your mind, I thought we just read that it was our heart, not our conscience. Well, the heart, some translations say it's the heart, others say it's the conscience. The heart refers to the center of a person's life. The heart is the source of a person's thoughts, choices, and behaviors. Now, in several translations, I think they rightly kind of distinguish 
Uh, the NET, it says this, or the net translation that says, by this we will know that we are of the truth and will convince our consciences. Okay, so what they're doing is they're picking out the conscience and they're saying the conscience more accurately represents what is being conveyed here. It's the part of the heart that condemns us in that way, shows us right and wrong. So we need to first ask, what is a conscience? Okay, I'm going to try to do this simply. But a conscience, this is hard. I, I would argue this is not an easy thing. The conscience can be best defined as the internal mechanism in us that orients us toward right and wrong. I love what um, one theologian, he said this. Oh, it didn't come out right. That's okay. I'll just read it to you. It's a, it's a meteor quote, but I think it's good. He says, first, the conscience, it's a witness testifying to what we have done in thought or word or action. Okay, so that's the first one. It's, it's testifying to what we've done. Secondly, it's a judge passing sentence on what we have done that is good or evil. And thirdly, here it is. This is the one we need to pay attention to. In some sort, executes the sentence by producing a degree of pride, if you do well, or uneasiness, if there's evil. So there's three things. There's testifying to what's been done, passing sentence on what's been done, and then executing the judgment in that way. One author, I thought this was very helpful, he compared the conscience to a thermostat. A thermostat, as you know, in your house, it's the mechanism that measures and regulates temperature. It tells you when to turn on the heater. It tells you when. So if it's 100 degrees outside, we don't want the heat on. And when a person becomes a believer, their conscience, like the thermostat, begins to be trained by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. Whereas an unbeliever's conscience is described in other places as being seared or burnt with a red-hot iron. So a conscience, the Christian's conscience, is trained by the Word of God. But just so we're clear, a conscience is a good thing. Believers and non-believers both have them. Everyone has a conscience. But like a thermostat, I would argue what John's arguing for here is the believer whose thermostat is all out of whack. It's 100 degrees outside, and you know what his thermostat's doing? It's, it's cold in here. It's cold outside. Turn up the heat. Or it's saying it's actually cold outside, and what's it do? It, it lowers the temperature. So what happens then with a thermostat or a conscience malfunctions? Well, thermostat's easy to see when it malfunctions. Conscience isn't so easy to see when it malfunctions. And this shouldn't surprise us either. We shouldn't be like, wow, why does this happen? Because Jeremiah tells us, Jeremiah 17, 9, very helpfully says the heart is, listen to, listen to Jeremiah's description of it, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Listen to the way that Jeremiah describes it. He says it's deceitful, it's sick. So what John has in mind here is the brother or the sister who, like we just saw in verses 18, John's encouraging us, love one another in word and in deed. And what we, I think what John's saying here is he's saying about the brother who's condemned. He's condemning himself. He sees how far short he falls of that standard. And this is what he does. He condemns. His, his conscience condemns him, or the condemned conscience. And I'm calling that the assaulted heart. Now, I want to start with a clarification what I don't mean by a condemned conscience. So it's under that section called caution, which I'm calling sinning against the conscience. Okay, so this is what I don't mean. What I don't mean is a person 
whose conscience is condemning them. What I don't mean is a person who's actually sinning against their conscience. Okay, so John's not talking about the person who's, who's actually willfully sinning right now. He's not talking about someone who has unconfessed sin or his own ongoing unbelief. He's not talking about that person. When a Christian sins, sins, the Holy Spirit and their conscience is what alerts them. And that is a good thing. When you sin, the conscience is the little voice in your head that says, that's not right. That's not right. And if you're not a believer here today, and your, your conscience and the Spirit has been working on you, I will just encourage you and implore you. The conscience is only liberated in Jesus Christ and Him crucified by faith and trust in Christ alone for their salvation. That's the only way the conscience is liberated. So the question is, what do I, what do I mean then by the condemned conscience? What does John mean by the condemned conscience? I think, I would argue... He's setting up here the concept of the hypersensitive conscience. Okay, so the question is, how do you know? How do you know you have a hypersensitive conscience? Let me give you just a couple, and I hope these actually came through clearly so you can read them. Yeah, they did. So the first one, you have to ask forgiveness over and over and over for a sin you no longer commit. Or the second, you ruminate about past mistakes and failures in your life. Or you seldom feel accepted or acceptable or accepted by God. Or maybe you get down on yourself for small errors or normal human failures. Or maybe you have a vague feeling of guilt, but you're not really sure why. And listen to what John says to that person. He says, by this, we shall know that we're of the truth and reassure our hearts. That is, we love one another in word and deed. But he says... For whenever our hearts condemn us. So John is speaking to someone who feels guilty before God and is unable to come to him. Their perceived guilt is a past action that's causing them to avoid the Lord. Their sense of weakness causes them to shy away from approaching the Lord. A conscience that continues to condemn a person to tell them you cannot draw near to God. If God really knew what you were like, you would never come near And this may also happen when a person does too much self-examination and they're terrified by what they see. So do you remember Sally at the beginning? She's struggling with depression. She She has these expectations of herself, for her family, for her children, which are extra biblical. So what does she need to hear to liberate her? I would argue she needs to hear this which is setting her heart, or setting our hearts at rest. Setting our hearts at rest. Reassuring our hearts. John says in in verse 19, By this we shall know that we are of the truth, and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. You may wonder, I hope you're wondering in that moment, how is that a good thing? So you're telling me, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. You're telling me the fact that I'm feeling the weight of my brokenness and my need, and you're telling me the greatest comfort is the fact that God already knows it. And he actually knows all the wickedness that you don't even know about yourself. I would argue that if God showed you all the areas, even today, even today, in my own heart, or in our own hearts, if he'd show us all that wickedness, we'd be consumed by it. 
we'd be, we'd be just laid flat on the floor. You may think it's the reason for the distress. Why would God knowing all these things bring comfort? God knows all your failures. He knows your every thought. He's known, he's known everything you've ever done. He knows it all. And John's saying that's comfort. Here's why. It's the third movement, which is from inward to upward. Eyes off of self. That's what I'm calling it. Inward, from inward to upward. From eyes off to self. Think about it like this. In a moment where your heart condemns you, all you see is yourself. Which I'm calling self-examination. All we see is our failures and our shortcomings. And in those moments, as one author said, it is easy to become so tense about our failures, to be so hard on ourselves for not doing better, so miserable about our state that we lose the sunshine of God's love. Maybe think about Steve at the beginning. I realize I'm giving a lot of examples. But I think in a situation like this, we're very quick to be like, that will never happen to me. That will never come to me. But think about Steve. He committed a sin as a teenager, and he just can't move past it. And it's been happening for 60 years. Asking, what am I going to do with my guilty feelings? I can't help them. This is what John says. Listen, in verse, verse 20. For, who, for whenever our hearts condemn us, this is the comfort. God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Now, I want to make a clarification here. What he's not saying, what he's not saying, is he's not saying that he knows everything and he knows that you're trying really hard. He, he knows, God knows, I've seen signs like this alongside the road. I know everyone has. God knows you've been trying. He knows you've been having a hard time and he'll accept you. That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel at all. It's not that he sees all your effort and don't worry, he'll reward you someday. That's not it at all either. It's not that he understands all. He knows all things, so he knows you'll do better next time. That's not the focus here either. So what's happening in Steve's heart? It's best to look at just an example like this. In Steve's heart, when Steve says, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, what he's doing in that moment is he's elevating something in his heart greater than God. And he's saying, hey, here's this thing. Whatever the thing is, I don't know what it was. Let's just pretend it was something moral. Maybe he had a moral failing when he was a teenager. It's him saying, my reputation is greater than you, God. Look at, look at how, this is why I can't forgive myself. I love what one author said. He said this. He said, the hypersensitive conscience has made the standards of Christian righteousness higher, hear this, or different than the standards that the Bible itself sets. It is, a, it is as if rules, rituals, and requirements take greater precedent than a right relationship with God or with people. So for, for Steve here, I would argue that what he's doing in that moment when he says, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself, he's saying, my reputation is higher than you, God. So whether it's the God of self, whether it's the God of moral uprightness, whether it's the God of career, maybe it's the God of self-image. He says this, he says, for whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. 
So it's this last piece. The focusing from inward to upward. The focus is on God. The focus is on the greatness of God as compared to you. God's love is greater than the things we think about ourselves. God's love is greater than our feelings about ourselves. God's love is greater than our human frailty. And God's love is greater than any lowercase g God we set up. The comfort of these verses is that God knows us better than we actually know ourselves. And what he's done is he's redeemed us. Is he said, I love you in spite of you. I love you and I'm showing my love for you in Christ Jesus. He sees it all, yet he sent us the Lord Jesus. He sees it all, yet he dies in our place. He sees it all and chooses to dwell with his children. Go back to Jeremiah 17. This is what he says. He asks, the heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Listen to what the Lord says. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doing. It is this knowledge of God that should reassure our hearts. It is this knowledge of his judgment alone is trustworthy. It's the knowledge that our judgments are utterly faulty. So Christian, I have no clue where you're at today. Maybe you're in a really good place today. Maybe you're in a good place or maybe you're not. Maybe you're here today and your heart has been condemning you for the last 60 years. And if it is, know this. God is greater than your hearts. Listen to what Paul says in Romans. What then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me put it another way. Let me fill in the blanks for what John would put in there. If God is for us, who can be against us? Our own hearts? No. His answer is no. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? So John would put in there, not your heart. Not whatever the thing in your heart is, none of it. Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God. So when we say, let me put it like this. So when we say, I know God's forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself, in fill in the blank, whatever it is, what we're saying is, if you ever say that, which I've said that, okay? So just so we're clear. This is not something foreign. I think this is something that others have said. I've heard it everywhere. What we're saying, and what you should do is peel that back and ask, what's behind that thing? If it's a moral issue... What it is, is it's likely your own reputation. Maybe it's a career thing, and you just feel like, oh, my career is, is plummeting, and it's awful. And I'm awful. Look how terrible I am. Peel it back and see that you have created a God. The judgment of the career is greater than the judgment of God. And that is just not true. You do the same thing in parenting. When you see your child screw up, when you see your child be a child, be a rebel, and you think, how awful am I? Peel it back and see that your justification does not come in your parenting. It's not greater, and God's judgment is what matters. So confidence, he's, he's pushing us toward confidence, getting away from self-examination and focusing upwards. Now he's going to move toward, if you're taking notes, 
It's the benefits of the confident. He's pushing us toward confidence. Listen to what he says in verse 21. Beloved, now he, now he, so he's presented the, the condemning heart. Now he's going to present, present, present the, the heart that doesn't condemn, that has confidence toward God. So it's the benefits for the confident. John now lays out several benefits for the person who's confident. And here's the first one. It's simply confidence before God. And it's like, wow, that's very intuitive. Conf- benefits of confidence. And the first one is confidence toward God. And I would entitle it access to God. The confidence that a believer has before God is the fruit of his right standing before him. We do not stand on our own merit, but we stand upon the rock of Christ. I love what one commentator said. He said, The boldness with which the Son appears before the Father, and not, with, not that with which the accused appears before the judged. So he's saying the boldness that a son has before a father and not the one where the accused has before a judge. When we say that a person has confidence before God, we are saying that they have a kind of freedom of speech. Now we're in America and we love freedom of speech. We should love freedom of speech. But the kind of freedom of speech here is a freedom of speech that is unhampered in the throne room of heaven. I want you to think about that for a second. Freedom of speech in America is a great thing. It is amazing. We can speak whatever we want, wherever we want. But this is a freedom of speech in the very throne room of heaven. There is no doubt, there is no reservation, there's no fear or shame to speak our minds. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews says it. He says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's saying, Jesus, he's passed through the heavens. He's the one. He's seated at the right hand. Listen to what he goes on and says. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy in help to help in time of need. The confidence that we bear before the courtroom of heaven is the basis for the sacrifice. The confidence that we bear before the courtroom of heaven is the basis of the sacrifice of Christ. And our confidence in coming near is pleaded by the blood of Jesus. Let me give you an example. Maybe you think, wow, um, never thought about it like this. But let me give you an example from Scripture of this happening. In John 21, you can turn there if you want, but it'll, it'll be up on the, screen, on the screen. We see an example of Peter with the risen Lord that I think is very telling. And I think it's really a representation of what John's talking about here. Now remember, Peter's last encounter with the, with the Lord Jesus before his crucifixion was he denied him three times. So you can imagine, I don't know about you, but I would think when when Peter saw the Lord Jesus, he was excited, obviously. He was enamored. But you know, I would imagine he had some amount of, remember what I said about him? I drew down a curse upon myself saying I didn't know the guy. But listen to what the Lord Jesus does to Peter. And I would argue he's doing the same thing for us, for those who condemn our hearts. This is what he says. So when they had eaten breakfast, the risen Lord, with, with Peter... This is what he says. Jesus looks at Peter, likely across the campfire. 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Notice what he even says. He says, like, Lord, you already know that I love you. Jesus' response, feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And notice what he's going to tell him for the third time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? I can only imagine that, the, that Peter in that moment was so grieved because he remembered, oh, I called down a curse and said I didn't know, know him. And listen to what it says in verse 17. Peter was grieved because he said to him on the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, listen to what his response is. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. You hear that? Do you even hear how he does it? He picks up exactly what John's saying and he says, your judgment's greater. Your judgment's greater than my judgment. I failed. I'm sorry. He's, he's repented. He's turned. But now he's saying, don't, don't continue to condemn yourself. Feed my sheep. There's work to be done, Peter. I need you to move on from this. But listen to what John goes on and says. And in verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our hearts does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what please him. And so we'll get into the last point, which is renewed prayer. Renewed prayer. Which is whatever we ask. And John's point here is not that if we're living in obedience and are doing what, what is pleasing, then our, then our prayers will be a reflection of his will. Not that we should just ask whatever we want. Okay, Lord, I want a Lamborghini. You said whatever I want. No, no, no. Our prayers, if we are keeping his commandments, will be an extension of his desires. We will not pray for vain things because we understand what our risen Lord desires. So if we have bold assurance before God, then we will ask boldly. But I want to consider something. What happens, so he, he kind of presupposes because we keep his commandments. What happens when someone doesn't keep his commandments? What happens when you're walking in disobedience? And I'm calling this last one hampered prayer. And you can see it in First Peter. You don't have to turn there. It'll be up on the screen. This is Peter addressing husbands, and he's talking about a hampered prayer here. Listen to what he says. Likewise, husbands, love your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Listen to his purpose, though. So that your prayers may not be hindered. It seems kind of strange, to me at least. The purpose that Peter gives for living with our wives in an understanding way and showing honor to our wives is that our prayers may not be hindered. So husbands, when we are unloving toward our wives and we refuse to show honor to them, our prayer life suffers. So that's just husbands and wives. I would argue, I think John would argue too, that the person who's not keeping the commandments and does not do what is pleasing to him, in the same way, your prayer life suffers. 
I cannot tell you of untold times students come to me and say, my prayer life suffers, my prayer life suffering, and then I ask them about any number of areas of sin in their lives, and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, but I just don't know why, I don't know why I can't pray. I'm like, that's a grace to you. It's a grace to you that God doesn't let you pray in those moments. Because he's saying, you're not right with me. There's something wrong here. But the person who walks in obedience, listen to what he says, he extends this to us. In verse 22 and 23, he says, and whatever we ask from him, yeah, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is the commandment. Notice the distinction there. He says, because we keep his commandments, plural. But then he goes down in verse 23 and says, and this is his commandment. What? <laughs> are, are, are you wrong? Like, what are you saying? Are you saying there's multiple commandments? But then he goes down and he says, and this is his commandment. Notice what he says in verse 23. This is his commandment, singular, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he's commanded. And I would argue that this commandment, it's one commandment, that when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we will love one another. It will be what happens. And when we do expectant prayer, we should never imagine that our little prayer requests are insignificant. There are no prayers uttered in faith in the kingdom of God that are insignificant. When we believe in the name of the Son of God and love one another, we can expect with great anticipation our prayers to be answered. I've used this example before, but I don't have another example. So if you have a good one for me to replace this one, bring it. I'd love to hear it. But I think about, I've used it even in First John. Think about the child, or like a king, the, the estate of a king, if we live down the road. We don't live in a monarch, so we don't really understand it. Maybe take the president. We'll just go there. And you go up to the president, the White House, and you say, I want to talk to Joe. I need to talk to Joe Biden. What would they say to you at the White House? Sir, you're not going to talk to the president today. You can't talk to the president today. Why? Because I don't know Joe Biden. That's why. That's what it boils down to. But if Joe Biden had a little girl, which I don't think he, I'm not sure if he does or doesn't, a little daughter, and she wanted something from him, she needed something from him, do you think for a moment that Joe Biden would look at her and say, sorry, honey, I've got world matters to deal with? No. He'd say, come here, honey. Let's hear what you have to say. And likely what she would say would be like, there's a cat on the front lawn. And he'd be like, oh, that's really cool. And in the same way, brothers and sisters, we bring our prayers to our Father in heaven. I don't have better news for you. I don't have better confidence that I could give you that we can approach the throne of heaven with great confidence because of our Lord Jesus. Since God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things, we should comfort our condemning consciences. And as we seek this comfort, we will have great confidence before him. And we will experience joy-filled prayer. We're going to move now into a time of response. And maybe as I read those stories of um, Sally and Steve and Mary, maybe you heard a lot of your own story. Maybe you didn't, but maybe you did. I would just encourage you 
that from what we've heard today and from God's word, I would encourage you to respond with whatever the Lord's prompting you to respond with. So just take a minute and respond to the Lord. Lord, you promise, you say in your word that those who come to you in faith, you will never cast out. Never, ever cast out. And Lord, if we are those today or if there's anyone in this room that Lord has been struggling with condemnation or their conscience condemning them for years or even days, Father, would they see your greatness Give them the grace to see the area that they're valuing other judgments and values and opinions above yours. Give them the grace they need to repent. Lord, we desperately need you. So help us now, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.